Hey everyone and welcome to a brand new Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It's our weekly show where we talk about the latest tech news, latest industry gossip and uh, share stories on our content and take a whole bunch of uh, supporter questions. And man, we've got a huge bunch of them this week. Um, joining me, first of all, Audie Surly. How's it going, Rich? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, glad you're here. Are you? Are, are we starting this broadcast with lies already? Barefaced lies, yeah. But, you know, as I said before we began, I am enjoying the, the 90s rapper aesthetic you've brought to the party this time. Yes, I know. It's amazing what a shower can do. <laughs> and uh, also, it wouldn't be a DF Direct Weekly without John Linneman. Rich, Audie, good to see you. I'm I'm glad you're okay, Audie, after uh, Rich's forced choke. I, I did survive. It was a rare example of mercy on my part. Uh, but let's move on. Let's talk, first of all, about uh, the Switch OLED. Um, it was a surprise reveal uh, earlier this week. We got a DF Direct out on the same day, which basically said, well, it's the standard Switch with a new screen and some uh, interesting quality Rich, of life improvements. It didn't just say that. It also said, yes, we were right. In fact, you especially were, were right on the money. Well, I'm not going to dwell on that, except to say that uh, I did go back to DF Direct Weekly number one, which, <laughs> in retrospect, sounded exactly like the DF Direct that we put out on uh, on Tuesday. I mean, pretty much point for point. Obviously, the, the doc stuff was new, but uh, yeah, that, that was quite interesting. But look, we're not going to dwell on it too much, um, except to say that we have now seen the developer sheet that uh, Nintendo has sent out to developers. And um, it's, it is an identical unit to the point where there's not even a system call in the new software that um, allows developers to know if a game is running on the Switch OLED model or not. So it really is just a new screen and a new dock. Um, but there have been a huge bunch of questions surrounding it. Um, and where should we begin? Well, um, I actually sort of put a compendium together of the ones that were asked just like, you know, over and over again. And basically the most popular ones were, um, well, was it was this kind of lack of ambition caused by the pandemic? And I don't think it was. Um, the first signs of this model appeared in uh, firmware 10.00, which was April 2020. So we can assume that the model was in development before that. Um, yeah, so I think this is just part of Nintendo's master plan, just to come up with a product refresh, uh, to, you know, uh, a mid-generation refresh or mid to late generation. Secondly, um, lots of questions about um, whether the release date of the Switch Pro is going to be 2022. Uh, I think we should probably lump all of the Switch Pro discussion into uh, a later segment. Uh, but John, let's talk. Let's just go through these questions. First one from Eric Benoit. Uh, do any of you gentlemen think Nintendo wanted to do a 4K upgrade for the Switch, but decided to limit the revision to an OLED screen due to chip shortages, thus ensuring that supply could meet demand? I don't think so at all. I, I, I don't think that the chips on for the Switch itself were necessarily supply constrained. I've heard rumors of certain elements of it being supply constrained, perhaps relating to, you know, other elements that have been changed. Uh, but, I mean, as Rich said earlier, I think this is all part of their original master plan. And I think a lot of the confusion around the 4K stuff is probably, like I said then, stems from most certainly there's another model that's being worked on. 
I mean, that makes sense. That's typical. And any rumors from that may have been uh, confused with what we have here. So I think this was always intended to be just more Switch with a different screen. Yeah, I think something else to add to the discussion here is that, it, you know, um, Eric here is suggesting that, uh, that Nintendo may have pivoted owing to the current sort of supply shortages. But, you know, just to stress, it takes years to make a console and um, develop and uh, publishers, platform holders have to kind of adapt to the conditions at hand. Um, but they can't fundamentally switch up a design because of a short-term uh, issue that just came out of nowhere. You know, these products take a long time to make. So, um, yeah, I, I would have thought the pandemic would only have had issues on the production side of the unit, not the actual design of the unit. Um, yeah, uh, Daniel Foss' question here. Uh, following on from the announcement of the OLED Switch, when a true successor comes out, will it even need to be uh, significantly more powerful if it has DLSS? Could games already feature higher level visuals by lowering the resolution to save GPU time, allowing for higher graphic settings than using DLSS to upsample to a higher resolution than current Switch games? Uh, I think just by Nate, basically to use DLSS, it basically requires tensor cores, right? So they're going to have to update to a more recent architecture. You can't just bolt DLSS onto this old Tegra X1 chip. And I think by the fact that any chip capable of DLSS would by its very nature be more capable, right? Now, obviously they can clock it down for battery life purposes and whatnot, but I don't think we would see something appear that would not be notably upgraded so uh but i think dlss is important because even with more powerful hardware uh the battery concerns will remain an issue uh the heat concerns will remain an issue so the more efficient modern chips whether it's like amperes or whatever um you know keeping the clocks low would be would benefit those elements and dlss would essentially allow developers to overcome the slower clocks i would say and deliver something that still looks sharp on both the tv output and the screen provided they stick with this hybrid approach of course i think uh, i think it has to be significantly more powerful um the extent to which it's more powerful is up for debate but um you know Fundamentally, the Switch 2, uh, if we can call it that now, or Super Switch, needs to be um, able to match the feature set of the current generation consoles, I, I would suspect, um, possibly without ray tracing. I mean, that is going to be baked into the design at some sort of level, I would assume, if they're just going to be bringing across an existing NVIDIA architecture. But um, DLSS is basically going to be able to give developers the ability to render a game at 720p, which I still think is a perfectly fine resolution for a handheld, and then um, bring it up using ultra performance DLSS up to 4K. Now, it need it doesn't need. The, I think the point is it doesn't need to look like a native 4K game. It just needs to look decent on a 4K screen. There's quite a lot of wiggle room there. Well, when talking about DLSS especially, uh, Nintendo are like masters at art direction to take into account lower resolutions and make it look fantastic. Like Mario Galaxy on Wii, for example, you know, that would upscale perfectly with some technology like that. 
So I could definitely see that that must be part of their master plan with a Super Switch. I prefer we use Super Switch. Switch 2 doesn't sound as cool. Oh yeah. So I agree. You pen the name as Super Switch Rich. I they've never done. They've never done a two, have they? Uh, Nintendo. Oh. No, they've done a U. <laughs> yeah, they haven't not... done a two. <laughs> they did a U-turn. That's for sure. Oh uh, wait, wait. Super Game Boy two. Oh yeah, that's true. Super okay. Game Boy two, but only in Japan. So we've got an exception that proves the rule. Uh, I think you made this point on the uh, earlier director did this week, or as I call it, uh, the home wrecking edition, because no one invited me. But uh, during that episode, you talked about sales. And I think um, Nintendo, when looking at sales of the Switch, it's still doing remarkably well. And for third-party support, like Indies and whatnot, there's no point of upgrading for another solid year, I'd say. So forcing new hardware from Nintendo's side onto the market during these times wouldn't have made sense anyway. I don't think it has anything to do with the pandemic either. So it's just uh, rumors went pretty crazy from like march until now and uh what they had was we pretty much knew that this is what was coming and uh yeah now we see what happens when rumors go unaccounted for the main issue has been that uh, there were actually some really good sources out there some really reputable out outlets uh, like bloomberg they've got a really good japan correspondent saying hey this is going to be happening it's happening now it's got an upgraded nvidia chip and uh, that hasn't panned out and at the same time, you know, there is a kind of, I don't know how really how to describe it. Let's call it an, uh, an insider network uh, that like to share gossip. And um, uh, it's kind of 50-50 as to whether, I mean, obviously a lot of this ends up on Twitter. And I think the track record of insiders has actually been pretty poor uh, this year. But um, it's kind of 50-50 really, isn't it? because you know, <laughs> also but, Nintendo is kind of unpredictable they they do absolutely. what they want to do uh, it's easier yeah, with do. like something like Microsoft or Sony because they kind of follow the same trajectory regardless it's going to be more powerful it's, they're going to compete with each other but Nintendo you don't even know if the next one is hybrid well kind of but we don't know any form factor we don't know anything of gimmicks that they could add so it's so unpredictable that Nintendo rumors I generally always disregard until Nintendo decides to announce something and they'll decide to announce that exactly when they want to there is no need to uh, assume anything even the directs just show up with like two days of warning so I mean that's how it was with with, with this thing when this new switch dropped it was just like here's a tweet and a video and it's just like out of nowhere after all these rumors and months and it's just bam there it is <laughs> yeah um let's let's sort of take some more questions on this uh iron 65 says uh do you consider the switch oled as a safer move move than releasing the rumored uh pro version i somehow feel that pro version is going to complicate things for developers considering they have to build new versions of their games or probably leave a handful of games only available on a pro version just as it happened with new 3ds xl and xenoblade chronicles plus I don't see Nintendo doubling costs in pandemic times for a pro version. So maybe the OLED could feel safer. Well, again, I don't think the, the pandemic is really going to affect their, their sort of long-term planning. Um, but I think from my perspective, the, the thing is that the kind of enhancements people were talking about for a pro version, just integrating DLSS 
basically means you're putting next generation silicon together. So if you're going to be doing that, then why not just save everything for an, for an actual next generation product that is deployed at the right time? I, I, I agree with you on that. But it is interesting that he mentions the, three, the new 3DS line and how that didn't really pan out all that well. Uh, but what, but kind of forgetting that since then we've now become somewhat accustomed to this like ha- mid-generation uh, revamp, right? Like the PS4 Pro and the Xbox One X were both rather successful. Uh, developers are used to working with this type of shift now and supporting multiple platforms. They still are. I mean, especially on the Xbox side where they're continuing to support the original Xbox One and heck on Sony as well. Actually, they're they're both like you know, supporting multiple machines many, many years apart. I don't think it's a big ask to ha- to have updated a Switch and then have developers target both hardware platforms necessarily. Uh, but I think, like you say, if they're going to prepare the new Silicon, uh, it feels like that would actually be a proper next-generation unit for them. And um, Tom Davis is asking about the, uh, the, the rumored Switch Pro saying that it was uh, rumored to be using a customized Tegra Orin SOC. Um, this is kind of weird because Tegra for um, uh, Switch was essentially built as a, as a console SOC. You know, it was built primarily for the Shield. The later Tegras have been more geared towards the automotive industry. And I do question whether um, that kind of silicon design is good for a handheld if you look at like the head units in these new car um, computers, that you know they're quite beefy, so I'm not sure it's actually a good fit for that. But anyway, going back to Tom's question, uh, do you guys personally think a Switch Pro would use that chipset, or would Nintendo reserve that for its actual next generation of hardware? Well, I think they're the same thing. Uh, the Nintendo Playbook is often to repurpose old tech in innovative ways, not use the latest and greatest internals available. To them, it doesn't seem like they would need or in levels of performance to get Switch games to a standard that leveraged DLSS well for its current generation. I would love it, but let's be honest, the Tegra X1 was already two to three years old when the Switch came out. Uh, so what could realistically be used for a potential Switch Pro upgrade? Well, John, interesting question here. Um, because he's right, Nintendo do have a proven track record of basically making the most of existing cheaper parts. And I think the Tegra X1, we had reservations about it in 2017, but it's actually come good for them as a really pro- a good product. I think we the reason we're sort of taking issue with this question is that we don't think there's going to be a Switch Pro. <laughs> but I don't know what you make about this question. Uh, and I mean, I'm with you. I, I think at this point, there is definitely not going to be just like a Switch Pro upgrade. I think any new, uh, more advanced hardware is going to be an actual, like, the the successor, right? Uh, and in some ways, you, you might be able to consider it a Switch Pro in a way, as I do think the Switch has been successful enough, and Nintendo has a track record strong enough that they would continue to support Switch games on the next Switch. Uh, so I don't think anything would change there, but I, I think that this is it. I think all all the rumors, all the confusion, uh, it point. This is the unit that was being worked on as a switch revision, and anything that comes after this is almost certainly just going to be uh, a new next generation machine from Nintendo. Well, let's get a different perspective on this. Uh, so, Audi, you're a gamer and you're in games development. 
So what would you make of the whole pro versus uh, sequel uh, argument? Not really sure. I haven't really thought about <laughs> it because <laughs> I'm still very much focused on my development on Switch. Uh, uh, we've had discussions with Nintendo regarding you know what comes next and obviously they're being secretive about this to all developers. Uh, but um, I think for Nintendo's sake, you know, something like next year, they have that new Zelda game coming out. They, the last few times, uh, generations, they've launched hardware with a new Zelda. So it's kind of like the perfect uh, bridge between generations there. And it's probably going to be cross-compatible, in my opinion. So, yeah, I don't really have much to add on that as a developer because everyone's still working fabulously well on the Switch. It's strong enough for indie development to not really be much of a concern because it's, you know, generally we don't make large open in the world like Assassin's Creed or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I I don't see any need for a revision like the Pro. It wouldn't really have added anything at this point, um, at this late in the generation because we're in mid-development with so many Switch projects that you know bumping it up wouldn't have made sense so it's better to just release a sequel hardware then i think um the one sort of big takeaway i've got from that question it's something we really do need to remember is that nintendo's playbook is indeed to repurpose old tech in innovative ways and there's always a kind of hype cycle when we get sort of wind that a new console is coming out and you want it you know internally you want it to be the absolute state of the art and that isn't always needed to achieve um, the stated aim with a, with a particular product project and you know again going back to the switch it's doing things with what is effectively obsolete 2015 mobile technology that we never really conceived it was capable of doing. I mean, I do remember the, you know, remember uh, the original Switch reveal event, um, John, where we both went, you went to the one in Frankfurt, I think. I went to the one in London. And it seemed to be, okay, so they've made the Wii U mobile. This is pretty cool. But the actual product has actually far exceeded that. I would say I agree, yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, what the hardware is, this kind of ties into this little question from Tom Davis that got me thinking where he asked like why the switch does not provide 4k upscaling and HDR given that the Tegra SOC supports it. And we talked about the 4k thing, but I actually feel like this would have been a perfect application for HDR as a new feature for the switch. Uh, specifically, they have this new OLED screen. They could have implemented HDR natively on that panel, right? So you have mobile HDR, uh, you could have had HDR support for, for the television output as well. Um, and I feel like this would have, I think the hardware wouldn't have, there, there's not really any extra cost there that would have caused problems necessarily. Uh, there is this tiny bit of overhead, but I think, you know, with the clock situation, they could have sorted that out anyways. But I mean, what do you think about that? That to me, that feels like that's the thing that they missed out on the most. And that's what would have really like made an even bigger difference. Like if you had a portable HDR screen like that, like OLED by itself is big, but adding HDR on top of that, like imagine if the new Metroid game launched with it and it's like, oh, you go in store or something and you see this little kiosk and it's running the game in HDR. That's absolutely going to smoke the original Switch screen and just look absolutely amazing. 
Uh, and I really think that actually would have been a really key upgrade that would have been feasible with existing technology. So I'm kind of disappointed that they did not try that. Mm. Well, I think the technical reason why you can't have 4K upscaling when the original Switch, uh, the original Tegra X1 in the Shield does it, I think it's basically down to the way they uh, are taking out uh, the USB connection on it. It's different to the way it's done on Shield, so the PCIe lanes are kind of uh, multiplexed in different ways. Uh, in terms of why, you know, in terms of why we're not getting an HDR upgrade on the OLED, um, it would have added to the development effort. It would have required them to put in more um, sort of features on the SDK. And also, you know, if you've got like super high peak brightness, possible battery life implications. Yeah, but I mean, the thing with HDR is it's, it's more about highlights. Like, and the way OLED works is, you know, um, if you're displaying full bright white screen, yes, that would absolutely consume a ton of battery life. But most games aren't going to be doing that most of the time, right? You just have a few bright highlights on the screen uh, with like more normal brightness stuff. And I feel like it, I mean, phones have HDR screens. Uh, so, and it doesn't, I don't think it has that much of an impact on it. I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I mean, it's obvious that they, they felt that that was not the right approach, but I'm disappointed still in that aspect. Yeah, I guess so. I guess the object lesson, though, is exactly as Tom Davies says, that, you know, they're not really into the absolute state of the art. They get there in their own time, and in the meantime, we get some terrific games to play. I mean, but they they did glasses 3D on the 3DS, right? And then they updated that with the new 3DS with a vastly improved 3D effect. And, I mean, you know, HDR to me feels like something that kind of stands alongside 3D, uh, but maybe they felt they got burned on the 3D stuff and they're just like, nah, we're not going to bother again. Yeah, so, you know, Switch OLED, we're going to review it. We're going to take a good look at it. I'm really interested in seeing the screen. I do think the screen alone uh, is is going to make it quite an interesting product. Uh, but, you know, I think the big takeaway is that fundamentally the Switch was always a great handheld. With this product, they're doubling down on it as a great handheld rather than addressing the inherent weaknesses it has as a dock machine. So that's kind of like, you know, it's maintaining the status quo in a way. But, you know, I guess that's really all we've got to say about this one at the moment. So let's move on to the next topic. Okay, so at the time of filming, this dropped last night, 2 a.m. in the morning, embargo, <laughs> which, which was awesome. But we did have pre-release access to it. Dark Souls 3 has received FPS boost on uh, Xbox Series consoles, meaning that a game that ran at a wobbly, uh, to put it generously, 30 frames per second on uh, Xbox One, now runs pretty much locked to 60 frames per second on Series S and Series X consoles. So on the face of it, it's not a particularly interesting story. You know, a game that was 30 FPS now runs at 60 FPS, but there's a few kinks in this one, right, John? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, first of all, uh, I guess the, it seems like they've done something special for this, right? Like um, you saw a comment somewhere regarding this where it sounds like they needed a brand new technique to make this work for some reason. Yeah, this was from Jason Ronald himself. Oh, okay. Uh, so that was actually Xbox. from Jason. So that's uh -huh. so that's like... I. It doesn't actually specifically state what that was, but it's a little bit surprising considering that we know the game already supports arbitrary frame rates up to 60, at least if you see on the PC and the PlayStation patch already. 
So I'm curious what it was about the Xbox version that required that. Well, what's curious about it is that it's actually using a title update. So the previous FPS boost titles, it was a system level tweak in the firmware. It's like, okay, all right, so I'm going to be running Watch Dogs 2. Uh, I'm going to tweak DirectX at the system level, and this game will run at 60 frames per second. And the game itself doesn't know that it's running at a higher frame rate. Now, um, I did have a chat this morning with uh, Lance McDonald, who did the 60 frames per second patch for Bloodborne. And um, he's kind of a bit mystified about it as well, because, um, uh, well, fundamentally, Bloodborne is a very different beast to Dark Souls 3 in that um, it was basically designed as a 30 FPS game. It's kind of baked in. What Lance did was to take a look at the PlayStation 4 Pro patch code for Dark Souls 3, figure out how they implemented arbitrary frame rates, and then patch that back into Bloodborne to allow for the 60 FPS patch. But um, as Lance points out, the PC version of Dark Souls 3 already had arbitrary frame rate support, and he reckons it was probably in the um, uh, in the PlayStation 4 version to begin with, and by extension, probably the Xbox version. So basically, the, the concept here is that it wasn't possible um, uh, for the standard FPS boost to work, or maybe it worked in a suboptimal way. So it looks as though they actually patched the executable. And this actually opens up a number of questions because um, Tom actually did the frame rate analysis here that you're seeing play out. It's pretty much locked to uh, 900p60 on Series S. A couple of uh, dips, I think he only noted one dip of any particular relevance. Again, it's typical super alpha heavy scene. We should point out before you continue is that the the PlayStation version had a 60 FPS patch because of PS4 Pro, but the PS4 Pro, another four teraflop machine, came nowhere near holding 60 FPS. So this shows how important the CPU boosts in these new machines really are, right? That the Series S can absolutely blow the doors off the PS4 Pro. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, basically 900p60 on Series S, uh, slight instability, uh, super heavy alpha, the usual culprit causes it. Uh, Series X, as you would imagine, just powers through 60 FPS. The issue being, of course, if they were doing a title update to enable this, then was there the potential to actually increase the resolution for Series uh, X and maybe even Series S? Because this is the kind of principal limitation of FPS boost so far, which is that a lot of the time um, that either using 1S only games, which is uh, Dark Souls 3 fits that category, or where there was a 1X patch, they don't actually uh, provide the additional resolution. They, They stick to the 1S code path on Series X. And so we're stuck with, you know, lower resolutions. So that's the kind of question I've got here. Um, Was there actually a vector for doing higher resolution support via the title update or not? Um, Lance reckons that resolution is simply a, a, a variable within the executable that you can tweak at will. And uh, he's a bit surprised they didn't do it. But, you know, possibly there was a reason they didn't. I don't know. It's a huge, uh, that's actually really disappointment because this could have been um, a really like superb console version of Dark Souls 3 because even on the PlayStation side, it's still limited to 1080p max. 
So that version is still a little bit better as a result, but neither is optimal. They're both defined by those original resolution targets for PS4 and Xbox One. Um, and considering how stable the frame rate is in this mode on Series X, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I mean the FPS push stuff in general, I'm, I love it, but I, I don't feel like it's unfair to say that it's disappointing that so many of these games are limited by resolution. Or if they're, you know, we know that there's this, they've showcased this resolution boost thing to us in the past. And I'm just wondering, you know, if it would have been possible to say, find a middle ground, like, oh, you can't quite hit uh, this resolution with FPS boost, but why why do we need to drop all the way down to the, the original Xbox One resolution, right? So finding some sort of a middle ground would be optimal. Like, even if Dark Souls 3 is like, okay, now it's 1440p. Uh, that would have been a huge upgrade anyway. So Yeah, which kind of brings me on. I, I was going to save this to the end for the supporter Q&A, but Liber McKee has a really interesting question that's related to this. Uh, you've hinted in the past that on your tour of Microsoft last year, uh, or two years ago, now time is weird nowadays. It, it was last year, wasn't it, John? <laughs> you saw them doing some kind of resolution boosting to old games in a similar manner to how they are implementing FPS boost. Are you at liberty to discuss this? Yes, we are. And with the recent rumors of MC developing AI, I think he's talking about MS, developing AI upscaling techniques, do you think this is what you saw at the time? Uh-uh. Uh, do you think they will take an approach more similar to NVIDIA or AMD? Um, so, yeah, let's talk quickly about, why don't you describe what we actually saw about this resolution, resolution boosting technique, John? Yeah, so they um, they had two TVs set up, one running uh, the game on the Xbox Series X, and they showed off Gears of War Ultimate Edition, which has not received a 1X patch, so it was maxed out at 1080p. Uh, they showed us the game running on Series X at native 4K. So it was a 4X boost to resolution, and they called it resolution boost. Uh, and yeah, it was extremely effective. It looked like actual native 4K rendering resolution. Like, it doesn't seem like they're using any sort of upscaling techniques here in terms of, like, interpolating pixels. It was just straight up rendering at a higher resolution. Uh, but as far as I know, we haven't actually seen this in practice. Like even Gears Ultimate never received sort of a boost for this as far as I know. Um, so I'm not really sure what's going on there. I mean, what do you think about this? I'm just trying to recall the actual details of the meeting. <laughs> uh, I do recall saying at the time that, uh, you know, uh, we've got some footage of it here. You can actually see it running. This is Gears Ultimate running at native 4K on Series X. And it's all done at the system level. It's not a title update patch, as far as I'm aware. And you have this interesting debug data on screen. And um, you can see there that the resolution increase is defined as 2.0. And I sort of said to them, well, that's awfully specific. You know, there's a lot of 900p games on uh, series on Xbox One S. Could you have like, you know, 2.5 times? Are you limited to integers or can you actually, you know, is it more arbitrary? And they kind of just smiled and didn't answer the question, <laughs> <laughs> if you recall. Yeah, but yeah, they, right. they looked really confident and really happy in the technology. And um, uh, But I think the key thing to, um, uh, to talk about is that uh, at the same time, they were talking about doubling of frame rate. But it did seem to be that they were looking at different techniques and there wasn't much discussion as to whether 
those techniques could be combined because that's what we're really talking about here, isn't it? If we're talking about system level tweaks, we would want to have Gears Ultimate Edition at 4K, absolutely. But we'd also want it at 60 frames per second because we're inherently greedy. <laughs> so um, uh, it's unknown as to whether those two techniques could be combined. And I think um, maybe it's simply the case that Microsoft decided, right, we're going to double down on FPS boost. We've got limited resources with the backwards compatibility team. And they chose what they thought would be the better boost to gameplay overall. And I suspect also that if they engaged FPS boost on their cloud servers, uh, that would also dramatically improve the experience of streamed experiences, of streamed gameplay. So there's um, there's that angle to consider too. This all loops back to Dark Souls 3 though, which is the one exception that actually had a real title update. And that's kind of, that's the baffling part. It's like, I understand why they may not have implemented higher resolutions in games done just at the pure system level. But if you're doing a title update, I'm genuinely surprised and, and not able to quite, I, I'd love to hear more like why they didn't actually go in and make that change. Because the Series X, I'm, it has the headroom for it let's be clear there's there's zero doubt that i think they could run this game at native 4k 60 if they were doing a proper like you know conversion upgrade kind of thing because yeah fundamentally this is an older game and series x should run rings around it but unfortunately 900p it's not great in this game especially because the anti-aliasing is not great it's a very noisy shimmery image and it's kind of surprising because you know you look at what happened next with uh, Sekiro. Uh, they went to native 1800p. They went to temporal anti-aliasing. It looks so solved much a lot of the yeah, yeah. It just solved a lot of the problems there. Uh, so, Audi, interesting point here. We got two competing, well, not competing techniques. We got two potential techniques that Microsoft could use, which is to basically quadruple resolution um, or double frame rate. Which would you choose? Frame rate. Easily. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my theory kind of stole it from me, but I was going to say that I'm guessing it might be either budgetary or just a team resource thing where they had to choose, and they chose the one that's more visually impactful at all times. Um. So, but I would, you know, if you're asking me if I wanted higher resolution or better frame rates or more stable frame rates, I would say, you know, FPS boost all the way. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that. Um, the Xbox One version of Dark Souls had the frame pacing issue at 30 frames per second, but it could also drop beneath 30 FPS. So, you know, this is a really substantial upgrade for Series S. And um, that's the kind of weird thing about FPS boost, because there's so many games that are tapping into the 1S code path. It does seem to me that Series S gets proportionally a, a better deal than Series X because more of its overall system resources are being tapped into. Whereas, you know, you almost get the idea that, you know, 900p60 for Dark Souls 3 on a 12 teraflop Series X, the hardware is just sitting there underutilized. I was going to say, Rich, they could do like a four-player split-screen version, just run four instances of the game on Series X. I bet it could do it. <laughs> there is, I would, I would love to see, I mean, this was the, the kind of uh, big thing from the Microsoft meeting that I still think about quite a lot, where they just sort of dropped into the conversation, yeah, the uh, Series X Silicon can actually run uh, four Xbox One instances simultaneously, which is just like mind-bending. I would love to basically see a uh, 4K output, four 1080p uh, quadrants 
running four different <laughs> one esque. Even if it's just a tech demo, I just think it would be awesome. Could add like co op, uh, like local co op to games that didn't have it by networking four virtual boxes together on your Series X, right? Like, come on, that'd be- that would be awesome. Yeah, it's just the, I just love the fact that this was baked into the silicon. You know, it's a, a really interesting example of of the kind of low level work which we're probably never going to actually get to see locally if you see what i mean it's just going to happen behind the scenes on the cloud servers maybe it just comes down to like you saying that 2.5 thing they were just like we have to scrap it he brought the decimal <laughs> away i think they were i think they had that covered uh, based on based on the smiling that we got back when i asked the question um but anyway let's move on a topic that i think is going to strike terror fear and loathing into the heart of john linneman in particular is this bizarre and interesting story that um, Ubisoft are going to shift Assassin's Creed into what what they're describing as a live service platform that connects future games. I'm kind of unclear as to what all of this is about. What? How do you interpret this news, John? Um. <laughs> okay. Um. Whew. Try to try to step back from your loathing. I, of take a deep breath. I think what they're <laughs> We're try- here for you. I, I assume what they're trying to do is um, build some. So obviously, you know, they've seen success with games like The Division. You know, this the the whole Destiny model. Fundamentally, you can still play these games like single player games. But I think the idea is they want to bring more people into the world and find a way to. Uh, keep it fresh like updating it with new features or like new missions along the way find things for people to do together i mean that seems to be their focus i think it's just like all right we have the single player game how can we do more to keep like people engaged and playing it over a long period of time and you know slowly but surely they're sort of min maxing things here like how can we get maximum amount of player engagement out of our big single player games uh and I, I think that's very, very obvious what they're trying to do. And yeah, you know, I have my thoughts on this. We could talk about that in a second. So there's that bit at the beginning of Assassin's Creed Unity where it's like a the absurd, is it Absurgo, Abstergo? Abstergo interface where basically you start Assassin's Creed Unity out of one of a whole bunch of different um, Assassin's Creed scenarios that... You know, you can't access at the time, but it, a lot of people have kind of been tweeting that as an example of the um, uh, of how this could work. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. I don't know if there's any multiplayer component to this, or whether it's just um, it's it's just a way of linking together all of these single player episodes. Or maybe it's like uh, I forget one of their PC games recently. They shut the servers down, and you can't play it anymore, even though it was a single player game. So. Maybe they just want to ensure that you can't continue to enjoy the game over long periods of time, so you have to purchase the new oh, installments. I'm not too worried about that, Sean. I think that's a given. Yeah, I think they're going to do that. Well, I don't know. Um, I still don't know. I'm reserving judgment on this because I don't, I, I've read the release. I don't, I don't really understand what they're doing. I wouldn't pass judgment on this aspect. I will say that um, you know, Assassin's Creed is still very successful. It has a big audience. Um, they're obviously continuing to follow that trend. Uh, I'm not a fan of current Assassin's Creed. I don't think the last three games are very good. Uh, I, there's a lot of amazing craft work in there. They look phenomenal. 
Uh, you can tell that very talented studios worked on them, but I, I do not like what they've done with the series. So what I think about this going forward, it doesn't matter to Ubisoft. They absolutely could not possibly care less about what somebody like me thinks about the future of the series because I am no longer the target audience. Uh, I used to enjoy these games, uh, but Assassin's Creed today is not what the series was, right? And, you know... Well, well, hold on a minute, because you did quite enjoy Origins, which was the first one of the of the new sort of setup. You know, you you had some positive things to say about oh, it. Oh yeah, at the time. yeah. At at the time when I first played it, I did enjoy it for about ten hours, and then and then it kind of sets in. And then, so fundamentally, Origins started what I have a problem with is like they made the world so big and just. They slowed the pace down. They're like, okay, we want we want players to stay in this world for way longer than before. So we're going to make everything take 10 times as long. We're going to stretch out the story beats as far as we possibly can. We're going to put in more busy work than you've ever seen in your life. Uh, you're going to spend a thousand hours to get through this game. Uh, that's, a, that's a bit over the top. It's not actually a thousand hours, but... Um, so like, it feels like it, that's your point. It feels like it, right? Uh, the thing about origins though, of all, of all of them origins though, with its specific scenery, like a lot of deserts and that, that kind of area, it did at least have this like feeling of vastness that I found kind of appealing at first. So even though I did not finish that game, it, it did lose me ultimately because I just got tired of the busy work. Um, but I was like, okay, this is an interesting step. I don't like some of the like I didn't like the combat for instance I didn't think it played especially well but there was some cool stuff there it's just that they kind of doubled down on all the things I didn't like in that game and they didn't really fix any of my complaints and it just kind of got more tedious and then by Valhalla I I did, I found I found it so unbelievably tedious to play and I think the the moment that it broke me was when I got into combat in one of those things and you just look at the floppy animation and just the lack of impact and the the awful game feel of just like swinging your axe around and like taking on enemies. And at the time I was playing through the Demon Souls remake and it's just like the contrast between the combat in that, like a Souls game, and then the combat in this, it's so stark that I'm just like, even when there's action in Assassin's Creed now, the action isn't fun. So like, you know, it feels bad. So you have all this other tedious stuff and then you have action that just doesn't feel good to use at all. Like, I, I don't know, like it, I don't want to rant too much. I've ranted enough on this, but let's just say, you know, I will, I will give them some kudos though. Assassin's Creed Valhalla was a gorgeous game. Uh, they, they delivered 60 frames per second. Uh, it has nice object motion blur now, you know, technically speaking, like that team is super talented. Like they're doing some amazing stuff on that. And I recognize that. I think Assassin's Creed, the last three games, are actually good games. They're just good games that I don't like, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So, so what do you make of this live service platform, Wardy? Does it excite you? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really, uh, I haven't played Assassin's Creed since, um, man, yeah, it's been a while. Even though Valhalla was uh, modeled after my backyard. But, yeah, it's um, true. Partially. Partially. Um, wow. Only the nice parts. But the... 
I think the problem I have with Assassin's Creed is like the lack of focus on character and kind of setting because you can create the big open world with tons of things to do in it but I kind of just miss focus overall in these games it feels like they just become too vast for me that's an interesting thing Audie so that's something I've thought about a lot with game design it's like when you're playing a, a game with a smaller detailed world and you spend a lot of time in that world over time you become familiar with it right you get used to the different parts of it uh, traversing the world becomes fun and engaging there's challenges along the way this is what makes Souls games so engaging. Like their worlds aren't that big, but they're so expertly crafted that you, by the end of the game, you know every inch of that world. And yeah, I find that really engaging, right? Yeah. This is, you know, John, you, you bear, oh, you born fruit. You have children. Yes. And like if you give kids a set of toys, they tend to craft world stories. And at least it was this way for me when I was a kid. You Still know, is. It's called, action figures it's called Roblox. Toys. Yeah, well, nowadays it is for him. <laughs> but, you know, generally, if you give them a set of toys, set of Playmobil, whatever, they they get into that. They live in that world. But if you just fill the kid's room with tons of toys, they don't they get distracted and they don't know what to do and they start running around. And I feel like that way with Assassin's Creed and a lot of the open world games. It's just way too much. And even though I really respect, as you said, the craft, I respect all the work that goes into it. It's like... I can never settle in to the world I'm supposed to like live in there because it's just too much. I don't have the focus. You start to really see the strings behind the scenes and you start to realize like, okay, they've crafted a set of systems and like situations that they are then going to essentially adapt many, 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 many times over. So you end up doing the same thing over and over again. And it lacks that feeling of crafted uh, scenarios, right? You were said you're in there for a thousand hours, right? Not really, but it feels like it. To, to have a finely crafted game with like a really memorable world and like every beat is like just perfectly refined, that takes so much time and manpower to achieve. So for them to try to deliver a game of this scale with this much content, there is no way that they could ever possibly match that. They do a pretty impressive job, I'd say, anyway, but uh, obviously things have to give, and, and the whole game is systems-driven, and those systems kind of just get reused over and over again in a way. It, it makes sense in terms of like getting a ton of stuff in there, but once you see behind the curtain, so to speak, it just feels like busy work. Like you're just like, you know, moving across the world is, isn't... There's no challenge there, right? Like you're just... Okay, I'm going to go to this next checkpoint. Either fast travel, which is kind of like, what's the point? Or you're just pressing up on the analog stick until you get to the next point. You start point. avoiding the world just because it's, you know, like, a hindrance. You never get you know, into the world. So. Like, you don't remember most of the hills in that game. Like, even if they look beautiful from a rendering standpoint, they're not, like, memorable locations, per se. I, I'm probably going to get lynched in the comments for saying this, but I think the last time I really enjoyed a world, so to speak, was uh, Sleeping Dogs. I really enjoyed. Well, that was just that was memorable. The setting that they created, and the characters, and just the you, whole feel of like. I thought you liked uh, Red Dead Two, though. I loved Red Dead Two. Uh, it did get a little bit long in the tooth at the end. We we could have an entire direct on what we don't like about open world games. <laughs> 
Assassin's Creed Direct, baby. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and add a bit of balance to this because there are people that really that really love the uh, new I, Assassin's uh, Creed uh, games. And talk about that's it. what I said. What I said, do, what are you doing? It's you, you know, look bad now. So, for I, example, uh, Tom Phillips on Eurogamer, he's so into the lore and stuff to the point where uh, you know they announced the Wrath of the Druids expansion. And uh, I was just immediately thinking of the druids from Stonehenge in Spinal Tap. Great balance. Nobody knows who they are or what they were doing. Uh, And then Tom just basically said, uh, well, you know, Stonehenge is actually in the base game. You know, they've done that. You know, there's there's (laughs) your dreams of Spinal Tap druids at Stonehenge. You know, it's not really possible. That's the level, the level of knowledge that he had of Assassin's Creed, where you know, it's just you know they're, they're really invested in the law and stuff. But look, I'm not a massive Creed, uh, fan of the new Creed games, and it's simply because of this. Uh, I defined the the DNA of uh, Assassin's Creed game as um, you're revisiting pivotal points in history, right? And uh, you're meeting historical characters that, that you know, historical uh, figures that are hugely important. And uh, you're in uh, sort of settings that you've heard about in history that um, that you can actually visit and interact with. And there's, you know, these amazing cityscapes packed with people. That's we not already it, have this know. game. It's called Bill and Ted. <laughs> what? Bill and Ted on the NES. Oh, it's about dear. the exact same thing. What about the Lynx version? <laughs> But anyway, the, you know, so I would really like to see, you know, if I've got a wish list of stuff for Assassin's Creed, it's like go back to these pivotal points in history because I'm seeing, you know, some really nice stuff in Origins and Valhalla, but it isn't stuff that actually makes me think, wow, this is a portal into, a, you know, a, a historical period of massive importance. It's just like quite nondescript. Rich. Yeah, that's the this- focus we're talking about. So this is interesting. This actually kind of brings something I thought about with Assassin's Creed. So the first game, Assassin's Creed 1, it's flawed. It's repetitive. There's issues with it for sure. But one of the most interesting things about it is if you tried to play the game without the UI, sort of the immersive mode, they they actually allowed this and kind of encouraged it in a way. Uh, I tried that. And when you do that, you get rid of all these icons and all these waypoints and the map and all that kind of stuff. Well, I guess there's still a map if you want optional. Um, and suddenly you find yourself just looking at the world, right? You you're watching the sight lines, you're looking for things in the world that triggers you. You actually sort of explore it and like just the missions kind of work in a more natural way and you feel more immersed in that environment. And I felt like they never, really like found a way to make that work in a good way. And I would love to see them go back and like really look closely at the, at the framework of Assassin's Creed one and being like, all right, how can we like use this concept of get rid of the UI, get rid of all these icons, like don't have a map with a billion icons, make it so that everything you're doing in the world is done through just like interacting with it, poking at the world. You know what I mean? Like, I would say, in a way, Nintendo explored this a little bit with uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, and I feel like there's more room to grow there. And I, I really would love to have seen Ubisoft like take inspiration from that and like really rethink what it can be. Don't think like we just got to add more missions and more icons. Think what can we really do? We spent all this money making this gigantic, beautiful world. How can we really use it in an interesting way that it makes the player like actually like engage with the world itself? 
Uh, and I, there's so much potential there, and I, I would just love to see them really explore that. Okay, well, I'm, I really enjoyed this discussion, and I think we should uh, discuss more of our disappointments with Assassin's Creed in a future Can we talk direct. about the movie sometime? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move on. TIE Fighter Total Conversion. I think I saw a post about it on uh, RPS. Um, there's a video. Well, Rich, you could say that this ties... Into our DF Retro this week. Oh, no. That was the Star Wars joke of that, this that week. Was, uh... the, yeah, TIE Fighter Total Conversion uh, is really interesting because it is, as the name would suggest, the total conversion of TIE Fighter, the old LucasArts uh, simulator. And uh, the entire game has been remade from top to bottom. All the uh, 76 missions, there's all the uh, unique missions between. Uh, all updated visuals. I've heard from some people that it even has some preliminary VR support, apparently, which would be very interesting to try out. Even though I'm not a big uh, fan of VR, as I cannot play it due to motion sickness. Uh, there's even the uh, uh, the original game, John. I think used the iMute system, right? It does. So absolutely. It had that um, the dynamic music. dynamic soundtrack, and you can choose between new MIDI files. Like it's not. Um, pre-recorded or anything. It's still MIDI, but it's uh, updated with better instrumentations. And so you can choose between the old iMU soundtrack or the new one, which uh, I heard some uh, on the YouTube trailer and it sounded pretty good. So it's interesting here. You just have to have the uh, X-Wing Alliance game and you can apply this uh, total conversion on top of that. So uh, people have been you know, begging for a new X-Wing or TIE Fighter for many years, and I guess this is the closest we'll get uh, even though I kind of enjoyed the um, Squadrons game they released recently. It's not similar in any way, but I do enjoy uh, still dogfighting in Star Wars. So they're using the X-Wing Alliance engine, and it looks to me like they're basically assuming, well, they're basically tapping into the extra hardware, the extra power of modern machines. So they're adding mm. stuff like more ships and uh, and a lot of extra stuff on top of that. They're using the uh, the X-Wing Alliance upgrade project sort of as a base. So so this is crazy. So it's a it's a late 99 engine from X-Wing Alliance, which was then upgraded like several years later uh, with the upgrade project. And then they've used that as the base for the TIE Fighter total conversion, essentially bringing all of the, the missions and everything around the original TIE Fighter into this new engine. Um, and yeah, it... I so when I first got a 486 PC back in the day, Tie Fighter was the first boxed game that I purchased at the time because before that my PC was much slower and I didn't I play that many PC games. It was mostly just consoles, but this was this was the beginning of my period of playing a lot of PC games and it was a great one, especially because uh, at the time you know there hadn't been anything. This was this was kind of new territory, I think, for Star Wars storytelling at the time as well. Just like put put you in the role of the of the Empire, like and actually playing from their perspective. Uh, it, it was a very memorable Star Wars experience. But obviously, you know, it's pretty old at this point, and I'm pretty happy to see that that it's been um, redone in this way. I haven't played it yet though, but I definitely want to try it. Yeah, uh, we did the DF Retro on Super Star Wars, and we actually do touch on X-Wing during that because it was a it was one of the first that LucasArts themselves kind of penned. So it's like an expanded universe title from LucasArts themselves, and uh, it was 
part of the reemergence of Star Wars to mainstream. So uh, I've always been a huge fan of it. Uh, I'm pretty happy to see it still being worked. I know many years ago there was like updates with online and all this stuff. So it's fun to see that people are still so engaged into this and still really now with the new modern consoles, they really should be putting out like a MMO type thing with, you know, this as a backdrop. Uh, Galaxies tried to do it, but it didn't really work out, especially as they updated the game. Nothing worked out in Galaxies. My my only nitpick here, unrelated to the game itself, but I was checking out the trailer they did for the TIE Fighter fighter total conversion and they start by showing footage of the original version the collector cd-rom version and which has in-game graphics at 640 by 480 resolution they put giant scan lines on that and somehow that really irked me because i'm just like you don't know you're trying to put those like old retro game consoles (laughs) why why would we talk about this anymore how how dare they Uh, exactly that's what i said that's the kind of ruthlessness to end a discussion that is my trademark. Uh, <laughs> but thanks for that. Uh, my impression, I think it looks really good. And I'm um, actually um, quite happy with the fact that it is um, still using an older engine. You know, they haven't tried to make it in Unreal Engine 4 or anything like that. So it still has um, a, an aesthetic of its time. I was just looking at the footage from the YouTube chat trailer. It just looks absolutely terrific. And um yeah, I don't think I have time to play it, but I'm just glad it's out there. And I'm glad that there is a community out there that's really going to be enjoying this. And just the fact it exists, it's just part of the modern miracle that is, you know, the kind of modding scene. Do you have a favorite Star Wars game, Rich? Favorite Star Wars game? Um, no, I don't. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, I guess if I had to put some thought into it... Um, I still don't have a favorite Star Wars game. <laughs> you like uh, Rogue uh, Rogue Squadron, though, on a technical level. Um, yes, that is an interesting one because uh, we got the GameCube into the office, and that was one of the first games I actually saw on the GameCube. I remember thinking, wow, this is really, really impressive. And just in the sort of latter day, uh, I just sort of looked back at Factor Five and what those guys were doing um, across the board and... Uh, just kind of want a comeback for those guys. They're unreal now, aren't they? They're epic. They're a part yeah. of yeah. epic. Cologne. Yeah, awesome. Maybe it's just me, but I always kind of grouped what Factor Five was doing with kind of what Criterion Games was doing. Like, I always thought they were kind of like two parts of, uh, or like two different sides of the same coin, like totally different studios, but they always had this focus on on just pushing technology. They had specific types of vehicle focus, you know, racing for Criterion, uh, more like flight stuff, especially with with Factor Five throughout most of their later games, and yeah, they're both kind of not what they were. Yeah, so I think you know, I would love to see because um, uh, there is these the stories of the uh, wasn't there like a Wii compilation of um, of the Factor Five Star Wars games that never came out? Something it like exists. that yep. it exists. It was finished. But- but nobody's ever seen it. Is that right? No. So they have shown it off a few times on like IGN and stuff, and I've seen it. Uh, but uh, it's locked up somewhere. You know, these days there might be some hope with like limited run or something. Maybe someday picking it up because the code is finished, and they would just have to go back with permission to uh, put it on like Switch or yeah. I can imagine it's the permission side of things that's probably the, the onerous thing. I mean, who wants to negotiate with Disney? Also, well, limited run has because Star Wars they've been fairly open to 
getting them ported up and re-released these days. We've had Bounty Hunter, we've had the original NES and Game Boy Star Wars, Shadows of the Empire has been re-released. Okay, so, so there is hope. There is hope, but it's a matter of like, you also have to get those guys together and most of them are in Cologne, but not all of them. So um, it's not impossible. Right, let's move on to the next topic. So SGDQ 2021, what is it and why should I be interested in it? Well, Rich, it is in fact a very good charity event. So awesome. SGDQ or Awesome Games Done Quick, AGDQ, uh, has been going on for many years and started its uh, life at MAGFest many years ago when I was there. And uh, it is basically a week-long charity stream on Twitch where people speedrun from around the world different games, oh, um, different gimmicks and, and incentives. Uh, they've consistently raised over uh, $2 million for wow. uh, Doctors Without Borders and uh, Prevent Cancer Association. So they've been doing amazing work. And I just wanted to highlight them a little bit because they do incredible work. They work really hard. And it's one of the better charity events uh, in gaming, if not the best one. And it's been going on this week. Unfortunately, as people get this uh, on Saturday will be the last day. And then on Monday, uh, one day too late. But, uh, you know, go to Games Done Quick, subscribe to them, and check them out next time if you're too late to it. But it's a fantastic event. And uh, this week... We saw like a uh, blindfolded turbo tunnel and battle totes and yes, that was an incentive. And <laughs> Wait, someone what? did it. Somebody did it? Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. Someone did it. How, how did they do it? The force? Uh, they use audio cues. <laughs> the force. So right. no one talks and they just listen. And uh, yeah, it was a, a Mexican, uh, the Mexican runner is his name. And uh, he's very famous for doing this kind of impossible stuff. Uh, there was also this morning, there, as of recording, there was a Link Phase of Evil speedrun on the CDI, which was uh, fantastic. <laughs> and they brought in tons of money. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's really cool uh, because speedrunning, I think, can tend to be seen as sort of just like, well, you run, you know, Mario as fast as you can or something. But the tech that goes into it, the amount of debugging, the amount of research, especially in the new modern games when it comes to like Ghost Runner or something like this, it is so technical and frame precise that it, for game developers, they often do watch these events and analyze what people do to break their games and figure <laughs> out and actually uh, support uh, the speedrunners and uh, bring them into their discords to discuss you know bugs they find and all this stuff so it's become a whole community it's become very essential to gaming in itself <laughs> funny enough though when talking about support uh, there was uh, a destiny 2 run scheduled i'm not sure if it happened because it's supposed to be after this recording but uh yesterday they patched out uh, a lot of the flaws that made that <laughs> speedrun possible. No. So, and, yeah. uh, and that was one of the bigger runs they planned. Oh, and, no. Uh, apparently, they did say that, like, they had been in contact with the developers and they were aware that the stream was going on. So, I think there was some tension there. But um, generally, all the developers are very much on board and uh, sometimes even commentate because um, all the uh, streams have commentators with um, expert analysis. So it's just a fantastic stream, and I just want to kind of highlight it because uh, if you haven't heard of it, um, it's really fun to watch. And I don't know John has started watching yeah, some of these things. Some really impressive really stuff. Fun. 
so uh, just to be clear, by the time we uh, uh, actually have this direct public, it would be over. But there's nothing stopping you reviewing the content and donating still, right? Uh, so no, uh, you can still subscribe to them. Uh, they still, um, you know, it's the nonprofits. They still send all donations to the charities. Uh, they do events in between. They have two events per year. There's SGDQ, which is Summer Games Done Quick, and then AGDQ, which is in winter and uh, usually takes part in um, January. So uh, you can still subscribe to them. And uh, patrons would get this on Saturday. So Sunday is the last day. So you can still catch the finale and help them reach their final goal. Well, I will withdraw my cynicism about this inclusion on the docket because it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's wrap up and move on to the final news story. Grand Theft Auto. It's going to be coming back. There will be a sixth installment if rumors are to be believed. Um, there was a video about this and uh, some new details emerged. Uh, Audi, what's it all about? Well, so there's only rumors so far, and the most, you know, like the biggest details from it seems to be some map details and a suggested release date. Uh, the suggested release date, as of I know, uh, Jason Schreier talked about it. I hope I said your name right, uh, but it's apparently like 24, 25, which is still a little bit ways out, uh, surprisingly, because uh, we've been dealing with GTA 5 now for three generations, basically. <laughs> so kind of interesting but the, yeah the map thing is uh, baffling to me we talked about maps earlier with Assassin's Creed and the rumor has it now and it's being corroborated by Schreier and other writers is that it is actually a evolving generated map and the rumors other people are taking with that is you know that it's going to encompass like a lot of North America and South America which just sounds insane uh, so I don't know, John, what do you make of an evolving map in GTA 6? I don't know enough about it to actually even have an opinion on this, to be honest. Like, it's, uh, I, I'd be curious. Rockstar always seems to do things their own way, which is, um, often interesting. So I suspect it'll be kind of unique. And the thing is, is GTA 5 was so big that I feel like anything less than some kind of, like, gigantic uh unexpected thing would be a disappointment so you want to go from a city to a continent <laughs> i don't think he does per personally no <laughs> no um rockstar does typically do more interesting stuff with their open worlds than a lot of other games do i i think uh but I'm still a little bit worried because they've had so much success with GTA Online that they would potentially, uh, you know, bring that stuff into the main game in a way that might not be appealing. But any, I mean, anything at this point is spitballing. And more than anything else, I'm just curious to see what tech they implement because the last GTA game, fundamentally designed for consoles, released in 2005, right? So GTA 5 is not new technology. And they did some pretty amazing things considering how it was originally developed but um you know red dead 2 was very technically impressive but also you know a very different type of environment so what could this one look like i don't know i don't know i'm excited for the tech at the very least i when it comes to gta um you know i, I really enjoyed red dead but i enjoyed red dead for its setting and how you know red dead doesn't need a lot of detail in the sense that like uh 
a backdrop of silhouetted mountains in the sunset, you know, perfectly highlights Arthur and, you know, his journey. It's like artistically perfect to be kind of lonely in that game. Whereas GTA, you know, is just mayhem. Uh, but since like San Andreas, uh, I've been kind of, um, again, a little bit overwhelmed with its size and I never feel quite um, familiar with anything. Uh, it was hard for me to kind of get settled into because of that. And not to mention that I'm not American, uh, so I'm a little bit tired of the setting. I kind of oh, wish yeah. that GTA moved you. out of America. Like, remember there was all those rumors about uh, GTA Tokyo for a while and all this stuff. Uh, there was uh, even a rumor about the future GTA, like set in the future. I guess uh, Cyberpunk kind of took that uh, from it, though. But um, yeah, I kind of wish that they moved away from the Vice Cities and San Andreas and give some new locales a chance. Because they are saying it's going to be based on um, a Vice City. That's what the rumor is saying, right? That's that's the sort yeah, of core of the that. map. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but first of all, obviously, we have. Coming in November this year, I think, the next-gen or current-gen version of Grand Theft Auto V. Now, that game launched in 2013 on PS3 and 360. It was updated for the last generation. It's being updated for this generation. And if we look at this from a cold, hard business perspective, it is basically because Grand Theft Auto Online is just been astonishingly popular and still is. And uh, yeah, I do share some concerns with you, John, that they may change the emphasis, uh, that there may not be as much of a focus on the single player side of things. But then again, if you look at Red Dead uh, 2, it seemed to me that the online portion of that wasn't quite as popular. And um, certainly in terms of getting a return on the initial investment, it was the single player side of things that, that really sold it. So I don't know. It's it's so far away and we've got these really early rumors. I'm going to be interested to see how much of it pans out. But I wouldn't be surprised if it is true simply because the scale of these games is so tremendously large that they do take, you know, half a decade to make upwards. The thing about, about Rockstar is that although their worlds are pretty big, there's just... There is this sense of detail to them where it feels like an artist was so carefully slaving over like every element of a street in a way that you don't always get with some of the other games. Not to say that, you know, they're not putting effort elsewhere. It's just you can really see the insane amount of work and, and budget and just manpower that are poured into these games. And that's obviously not feasible for most developers to follow. So it is always curious to see what they do because Rockstar kind of has that advantage where you know they could just spend years and years and years working on these things i would be interested to see what they do with the ai generally for like um npcs and stuff because you would have to if you evolve the map and whatnot uh, that's one thing but the world the scale becomes so large that you have to have a lot more in that interaction with npcs that would make sense across that world so I'll be interested to see just how much that's been bumped up. I think generally for GTA V, I remember it being, you know, for the time, pretty good. Um, though I kind of preferred the AI in, um, for NPCs specifically in uh, 4. I just kind of felt like 4 was, I felt a little bit more alive for some reason. And I think... Uh, There's a sort of density of New York that's going to trump 
you know, Los Angeles really, isn't it? Um, but I agree with you. I mean, I did the time lapse for GTA 4, and you can see that there is actually quite a lot of uh, interesting behavior programmed into the NPCs. You know, they go about their daily work days. You know, they put their umbrellas up when it rains. They go and get coffee. <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually the sort of thing that you only really notice in time lapse. But, you know, you can see that there was a bit of thought put into it. And meanwhile, if you time lapse, say, Assassin's Creed, there isn't that kind of uh, sophistication in NPC behavior. No one's getting coffee in Assassin's Creed. <laughs> we really got a doubt on Assassin's Creed. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're doing. But um, I think if they're going to be doing Vice City slash Miami, it's kind of like, I don't know, you, you don't really have that mid uh, you don't really have that density again. Maybe you will in the city areas. Uh, again, it was so early here that it is entirely conjecture, really. But the thing about Vice City, the reason why that worked so well was the also the time, the era, the 80s. Because yeah, Miami might do is again. an 80s city. I was in Miami a few years ago, and they still live in the 80s. Yeah, so yeah they never left that behind. Just, yeah, and you kind of need that you know, there's no better way of putting this, but you need that cocaine-fueled kind of 80s, you know, Scarface-type uh, setting for that to be interesting. I think putting it in the modern times, you can do something interesting. Well, you can kind of look into just, you know, time gone by and people past their prime trying to still live out that life and whatnot if you focus on that. But with the map being so large, again, I worry that the single-player component and the story becomes a little bit faded. And... Um, you know, they did great on Red Dead 2. Arthur Morgan's story is uh, fantastic, generally, even though I had way more money as a character than the cutscenes would uh, suggest. Oh, yeah, so, that's right. You you have you amass all this fortune, but they're always like, ah, oh, we need that money kind of thing. Yeah, they're they're always scraping money. by. It's like, I have $100,000 in 1920 <laughs> or whatever time it is. It's probably earlier than that. But, uh, yeah, uh, and that's something that, you know, they can work on. You can make some branching cutscenes that taking that into account the thing about gta that always gets me though is that the entire all this all this legacy it all ties right back into those to the lemmings right dma design lemmings you know let's talk about lemmings lemmings and then the original grand theft auto and it just who knew that it would spiral out to become such a big thing it's too bad i think sony now owns the lemmings or else we could have had unlockable lomax in uh GTA 6. Well, the first like Lemmings game I think that was done that wasn't done by the original team was Lemmings 3D or 3D Lemmings, and I hate that game. One thing about GTA that I've kind of been surprised about still is that I I expected them to do like a compilation of the PS2 games on Switch or something. It's, I, I find it strange that that has not happened. Yeah, actually, I kind of would have expected some kind of GTA on Switch as a thing. The only reason I so GTA Five itself, I guess, the only thing I could really see being an issue is just the sheer size of it. Like, if I recall, GTA Five at least. I mean, I guess they could compress it down, but I don't know. It's a pretty large game. I mean, it was on three sixty. In theory, if it ran on three sixty, it should run on Switch. Was it, was it I, multiple I that, discs though? I don't know. It was, but it, you know, it's still not a problem. They did LA Noir on uh, on the Switch, so you know, it, it should be doable possible cpu issues but um yeah i think a uh, red dead would have been a, uh, a probably a, a an easier port from a technical perspective you mean the first red dead 
Sure, yeah. Like the source code for that is like a mess. I don't think they can port that to much of anything <laughs> at this point. Okay, you have insight not. into the into the source code of of uh, Red Dead One. I want to know more. I mean, uh, what do you know about this? We can't talk about it here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, look, let's move on. We're going to be talking about content. Um, not much to discuss this week, uh, but what we have got to discuss is really good. So, John, take it away. Yeah, so I, I'm currently editing and just completed... Uh, well, I haven't completed the edit yet, but I, I had another chance to sit down with Billy Kahn from id Software again. So we did those videos on Doom Eternal, and he was like, hey, uh, you have... You know, ask you have time for a, a little chat about this stuff, and lo and behold, he did. So we sat down and did kind of like we've done recently. It's basically like another installment in the DF developer interview series that I kind of do off and on uh, when the opportunity arises, and we kind of go through some of the features, like how they ended up doing uh, the ray tracing stuff, how they decided upon doing the ray tracing. Does it have any connection to 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 Wolfenstein? Uh, you know, why doesn't Series S have ray tracing? All this kind of stuff. We kind of talk about it. And yeah, it's it's a pretty good interview. And hopefully that'll be up, uh, I don't know, at some point relatively soon. Okay, so tease us. What's there, uh, is there any major revelations? What about the, the, the Wolfenstein connection? I, I'll just say, it's, there is no connection. They actually, <laughs> they decided to write everything from the ground up for this new patch and part of the reason that billy kind of suggests that is that you know ray tracing is important going forward they want to include ray tracing going forward uh and it didn't make sense to just take someone else's solution and even though wolfenstein uses id tech they weren't really involved their core team wasn't involved in implementing ray tracing there so this was a chance for them to actually get their hands dirty and really like go through the whole process and implement it at the lowest possible level to ensure that it's extremely performant. And it is, I think, actually. I was just, especially on PC, man, I was just playing Doom Eternal on my PC here at uh, 3840 by 1600 and getting mostly around 160 frames per second with on Ultra Nightmare uh, using DLSS quality and ray tracing turned up, and it was just, like, unbelievably fluid. So, yeah, it's very fast. <laughs> So, uh, so what's happening on the, the DF supporter program? Because you've been doing quite a lot of stuff in the background, right, Audi? Because it's the thing, you know, we don't, this is actually something that's been a bit of a conundrum for me, which is that we're doing all this awesome stuff, but we kind of don't really want to talk about it too much in social media in case people think we're spamming it or whatever. But I think we should be talking about it because, you know, we're doing some fantastic stuff there. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, like John now with this interview, we've been focusing a lot on doing developer interviews because they're very interesting and we like banking them just for the information. And, uh, you know, our fans seems to be liking it a lot. Uh, of course, we put out the DF Retro this uh, weekend for Super Star Wars, which uh, so far has been getting a lot of good uh, reviews. So pretty happy with the response for that. It even has and, a cameo uh, with Rich in it. Uh, Richard's in that multiple and, times in uh, fact yeah it was fun to write <laughs> and uh, yeah generally we try to do about two videos per tier so for retro we've been doing a lot of the retro pickups we did one yesterday where John and I look at you know the retro games we've been you know picking up lately as the name would suggest and it's not just about picking <laughs> and, them up we talk about some of the history and the facts and just like yeah, our thoughts yeah. on the games and and sometimes there's revelations oh yeah we 
<laughs> yeah, we we tend, to, you know, John and I, as we collect, we collect games we want to play. So we play them, we talk about them. So the retro pickups, it's more than just like saying, well, I got this now. Well, I got this now. It's not like that. No, uh, no, but, no, no. You know, we, we pick up games and we play them. We discuss them on that show. So it becomes mini reviews. And uh, it also fuels more content because when we do the pickups, we get comments like, hey, I want to see you guys play more of this. And that and that becomes a DF Retro Play. And we're going to be doing more at DF Retro Plays as well. I think the last one we did now was Flipnik. Flipnik, yeah. Which I'm not sure if, is that out to public yet? I don't know. It's that not, was a good it's one not public yet. No, it's not public yet. No, because okay, we need a new one first. The streams. We did some uh, private streams with uh, patrons. That's another thing we've been experimenting with is more streaming for patrons or patrons, whatever you call it. Uh, and that's been really fun because we've been doing like basically audio commentaries on our old DF Retro videos and uh, as well as the PlayStation 1 launch video as we've been putting out the parts. And part three is coming out this Sunday. Uh, among those who have been enjoy enjoying that is uh, Yoshida-san from PlayStation because he keeps oh, yeah. tweeting it out to people. He, he's been watching it. And, it's awesome. Uh, I've been tweeting back at him about it. And yeah, he, he seems to really enjoy just the history of it and the uh, research we actually put into it. So that's the kind of thing, right? Is that we wouldn't have been able to do this type of video without the supporter program. Uh, it can get tedious sometimes to hear us always talk about join the supporter program, join the supporter program for like no reason. But that PlayStation video was proof of concept and it was so much fun to make and the reactions have been so good um and it 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 means more content for everyone it means more fun for us more time to do this so if you're on the fence you know join in jump on the discord talk to us directly you know come up with different suggestions of what we can do we all every day we talk to patrons about what, what do you want us to do next you know what do we want us to talk about and the support program lets us kind of go where the channel can't go because we can't do sit down discussions and talk about you know lemmings just because we want to talk about lemmings. Yeah, and we you know we do and we shall do it shortly. Uh, support a Q and A, but we do have an ask us anything um, topic on the Discord, and you know literally just questions that have got you know. We don't go into depth on them or anything like that. But if you need to know stuff, if you want us to be aware of stuff, you know, we've got the Ask, Ask Us Anything channel. We've got the feedback channel. We've got discussion channels for, for the videos that we do. And it's just a part, it's just a, an opportunity to be a part of the community. It's, uh, you know, even stuff that, we, you know, it's hugely valuable to us because, you know, we see stuff like, you know, somebody will post, oh, have you seen this? And, um, and you know, it's usually really good stuff that actually does make its way into end products you know into actual content and it's really valuable to us for, for us in in doing our jobs and just generally it's just a really positive community and uh just just get involved with it and uh, if you like what we do and it's like we said in the video if you like what we do if you want to have a closer relationship with the team this is how you do it and it's it's just fantastic i'm loving it it's not just the team itself, you know, it's not just like, come talk to us, but it's, yeah, as you said, the whole community has become almost a family sense that, like, we get up every day, you know, and we talk together, people help each other out, there's a 
collections uh, discussion channel and people have things offered to each other it's just like everyone's helpful everyone's happy to be there nothing stronger than family dude yeah and for (laughs) us it's such a uh what are you doing to me making me sentimental uh but uh the whole um patreon discord is just the feedback we get from there is so valuable to us because of course we check out the youtube comments and of course we check out twitter and whatnot uh and look at what people generally want and think and don't mind you know constructive criticisms at all but uh sometimes you know just the uh impulse uh factor of something like youtube makes it sometimes a little bit hard to gauge what exactly is it that uh, this uh, nice person wants and why is it that my big nose isn't in the way of that so the discord makes it a little bit easier for us to just kind of like gauge okay what is it that people enjoy what is it they want more of what is it that they want less of and um and when are we going to be doing biomutant biomutant when when biomutant when (laughs) the answer (laughs) when is that t-shirt coming out and will we have to send their royalties to the developer about that it's it's an interesting question (laughs) let's move on let's wrap up with some supporter q a here uh i'm going to start with uh, jason guffey the next current gen on crt video was very cool that was when uh, john hooked up uh, ps5 and series x to the sony gdm fw900 as someone who acquired an FW900 because of you guys, I'm curious if 120 hertz, even at 720p, is possible with the new systems on the FW900. Also curious how Richard was feeling about his CRT purchase now that some time has passed. I think I covered the CRT purchase a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is essentially to say that I moved my office onto the first floor and it w- <laughs> the CRT weighs 42 kilos. And so it didn't move with me. And um, (laughs) just generally, the amount of real estate it takes up, it's probably, I might be thinking about selling my FW900, but uh, it would be... Now would be the time to do that, Rich. What, where we've artificially pumped up the price (laughs) of our own video? (laughs) You just Martha stewarded your own CRT. (laughs) This is like, uh, you know, ethics in journalism, ethics in games journalism, what's going on? I'm going to have to hold on to the uh, FW900 until until the prices have subsided, obviously, uh, until I do sell it. But to to answer the question, John, um, I don't think it is possible unless there's an adapter that would be able to do it. The thing about CRTs is just, you know, it's not about what the CRT sees. It's about the adapters. Like the adapters all determine what is or is not possible. Uh, And obviously, yes, it does support 120 hertz. the question just comes down to whether or not somebody made an HDMI adapter that can actually tap into that, and that might exist. But essentially, it just like if you use that adapter, will the console see that it's capable of 120? And that's what I don't actually know. And we kind of have to search around and see if there are any that do this. Because yeah, theoretically, it should absolutely work. We know it works using a PC. So, and by the way, the PC adapters we're using to do that tend to be. Uh, DisplayPort. DisplayPort to VGA. Uh, HDMI is a little more picky, and usually the adapters I see for sale are just like, yeah, you can do up to 1080p 60, uh, which is annoying, but also most CRTs that you might use that with or VGA devices probably wouldn't support much over that anyway, so I'm sure that's why it's kind of 
typical of those adapters, but still. Yeah, I think this might be one to throw out to the community. If you've got a CRT, if you have got 120 hertz, 720p, or even 1080p support, uh, let us know about it because uh, we'd like to we'd like to know, right? Um, actually, Aldi, what's the situation with uh, with your display there? Do you use CRT? Uh, I have a couple, um, but they're just uh, Trinitrons. But uh, I am. I think this was noted on the show last week, and you had a wonderful reaction to this, Rich. Uh, I am looking for a BNO uh, 500, which has a built-in CDI unit in it. Which will be the five hundred. I just can't TV remember what the number is, forward. but it's one of those. It's like an <laughs> MX some or I don't remember the exact model unit, but uh, yes, a five hundred. Is it maybe? I think it's something like that. I always forget. But either way, yes, it has a CDI unit on top, and it's also the only CDI player that doesn't have that stupid uh, time battery, the timekeeper chip. Yeah, which I hate that timekeeper. So it keeper. is the ultimate. And it has a motorized uh, thing, so you, on your remote control, you can you know I can angle it wherever I want. And uh, yes, I will be throwing out my uh, ZX when that comes in. Well, that sounds awesome. I mean, just the concept of a display You're coming it... coming over, right? To the retro grief cave. <laughs> Check out some uh, B and O with me. Enjoy my B O. <laughs> uh, I I just don't know what to say about that. But you, well, in terms in terms of selling the concepts, you've certainly uh, you've certainly made it highly compelling. But. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's let's another just, T-shirt. Yeah, let's let's just move on. This is this is turning dark. Um, <laughs> okay, next question. Uh, Docs twelve thirty one. What game franchise that pushed tech for its time do you guys want to see brought back to the modern day, Audi? That's actually the question. That's <laughs> what tough. game? Can I, can I call someone? <laughs> can you phone a friend? <laughs> yeah, can I phone a friend? <laughs> um, no, what was the question? Hang on, one more time. The, the, the question is, what game slash franchise that pushed tech for its time do you guys want to see brought back to the modern day? Okay. This question's mm-hmm. made for you, right? Surely. I'm just going to say, like, Rogue Squadron. I would love for a new Rogue Squadron. We'll buy Factor 5. Um, another one that I really miss, and it hasn't been that long since the last entry, but it didn't push anything with uh, pilot wings. Uh, I would really love like a photorealistic pilot wings with you know pilot fun wings with the Microsoft Flight Simulator level visuals, something like that. But you know, Flight Simulator is fun enough, but it's kind of like. Uh, just the impressiveness, the scale, you know, coming at you and just, uh, but there's not much to do for me at least. It's a very different thing, uh, yeah. A biplane of parachute jumping, this kind of stuff with point systems. And uh, I would love, and Factor 5 was working on the pilot wings, in fact, that uh, got um, canceled, which was going to use the weather channel on the Wii to have uh, weather uh, from real life locations in real time. There's so much potential of pushing tech with that from cloud systems to weather systems to to maps. That, that's a place where you can do evolving maps and have it make sense. So, uh, yeah, I'd say Pilot Wings is pretty high on my list. Yeah, I agree. It's a good one. Uh, John? Rather than a specific game, I'm going to say Sega Model 3. There's so many great arcade games locked there, you know, that I would either love proper sequels to. Like, how about, like, you know... Uh, Daytona. Daytona. Like they tried to bring it back kind of, but it's not really the same. Or more so like Scud Racing Race. Championship Scud or? Race uh, or Super GT, yeah. I would love to see a proper follow up to that. But even if, you know, we're not talking sequels, like I feel like this is 
the model three, like it's so, if you weren't there, it's difficult to understand. But when, when the first model three games hit virtue fighter three, when you saw that running in real time, it was so, it was, it was literally years ahead of where uh, the home market was like, it was years. It was like looking at the future. There was nothing that looked like that before. It was unbelievable to see for the first time. Um, and that was such an important part of Sega at the time. And a lot of those games made on that technology are absolutely awesome. They still hold up really well today. And somehow Sega's just kind of ignored it mostly. And I'm, I'm, I remain disappointed that they haven't gone back and like tapped into their model three arcade heritage in some way. You know, you could like those games look so good that you could, you could just bring them back now. Like they're dated today, but like you just, like put them out on a new console in a collection and they're still going to look and play awesome. I can tell you a little bit of insider here, John, is that uh, I've heard from a little birdie at Sega Japan that they are at least looking into their extended library. At this I hope point. so. I would love so, that. Um, that's not to confirm. I don't want anyone to post a thread saying not like, a conf- Sega confirmation. Confirmed. But uh, they are very much looking into it, and they are discussing with uh, different developers in Japan well, what can be done and how feasible it is. So, crossing fingers. I, I do think eventually we'll see, because they have played out the Mega Drive collection. They have played out kind of um, the era which we've been stuck in. I think the Astro City is the beginning of seeing a little bit more move towards. Yeah, they moved out of their comfort zone a little bit. Same with Taito. They're doing the uh, Egret 2 or whatever. Egret 2 um, or whatever. Mini. Yeah, so it's a very competitive market at this point. And when you have that type of competition, you have to start looking further than just the same you know, slate of games that we've been getting compilations for now 15 years since the PlayStation 2. So, yeah, I think we're going to enter somewhat of a new era for arcade um, compilations. Yeah, I think it's worth putting into context uh, Model 1, Model 2, Model 3. They were just incredible for their time. I mean, you know, I'm thinking back to when we first saw the first screenshots of Virtua Fighter 3 on uh, Model 3, and it just looked unbelievable. And this was a time where, you know, these days we kind of take advanced CG for granted, whether it's in games or in movies. You know, it's it's just kind of, um, it's just there. It's just part of the of the environment now it's part of what you expect to see but you know going back to the 90s um in movies you know we were starting to see things like you know terminator 2 jurassic park you know it was a new frontier of 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 graphics basically in movies and at the same time in parallel to that you had this incredible evolution of um 3d in games and, you know, there was the T-1000, obviously, in the movie side of things. And then you saw Dual in Model 3 on Virtua Fighter 3. And it was like, you know, this is just absolutely incredible. And, um, yeah, I'd love to see uh, DF Retro on Virtua Fighter, um, specifically the first three. I think that they kind of lost lost the technological edge on, on 4 and 5. It became more of a purist yeah, experience. Four, it's, I, I think 4 was pretty... I mean, when that came out, it was still technical marvel. It was impressive, but it also it was ported to PS2, and the PS2 version, while inferior visually, isn't that far off. Which, which to me is like you know, when Virtua Fighter Three arrived, 
there was nothing could run that at home. Not a PC, not a console. Like you were never going to get anywhere near even the Dreamcast, which came out years later. Uh, that port is, you know, maybe not the fault of the hardware, but that port itself has issues and lower res textures and missing some of the geometry and such like that. Yeah, in terms of games I'd like to see modernized uh, through technical showcases, I'm going to be really boring here, but I'm really going back to what we were talking uh, about earlier. I'd really like to see Assassin's Creed go back to its roots. You know, this whole concept of big, thriving, living cities, um, pivotal points in history. I don't think we've really seen anything like it since Unity. Um, they tried uh, to, to sort of recreate Victorian London with uh, Syndicate, but it didn't really do it. They had to pare back the, the ambition significantly to make it run well on the last-gen machines. That's kind of what I want to see. But let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from, uh, well, how do we describe this? <laughs> it's one word, Christophin. It could be Christophin. It could be Christophin. Let's just get on with the question. Uh, what is your, what are your biggest pet peeves in terms of graphics tech? For example, for me, it would have to be TAA that is overly blurry. John, it's not necessarily just graphics, but I would say the thing that always comes to mind is anything that interrupts frame persistence at a regular rate, whether it's you know, just any sort of like weird little jitters, stutters, stuff like that. Like that stuff drives me absolutely nuts. Uh, I really don't like that. Um, Beyond that, oh, I, okay, the other one I would say is poor scaling. Whether it's like you're scaling something with like an awful, just generic bilinear blur, or the pixel scaling is uneven, or there's shimmering in motion, you know, for 2D stuff. Like anything where the where there's like, I guess it's it's kind of similar for both, where there's like a, a pixel or motion disturbance that impacts the game as a whole. I, I find that stuff really, really frustrating and just like it, it actually makes it so I can't enjoy the games in question. I was going to say uh, over aggressive motion blur on like camera and stuff, because like, especially back in like the PS3, Xbox 360 era, um, when that stuff happened, I get very easily motion sick and that would just you know throw me out of a loop basically as I control cameras. So I'm not a huge fan of motion blur unless, you know, subtle is fine. Her uh, object motion was, blur uh, is awesome, but yeah. c- camera rotation but the, blur is is not always the best. Yeah, that stuff really. That was one of the main reasons why I didn't play much during this uh, that era. I, you know, Wii was uh, <laughs> basically what I played because it didn't make me sick the for the most part, depending on what I was playing. <laughs> that little controller, <laughs> that little thing. <laughs> um, from my perspective, um, I guess. Specifically, uh, chromatic aberration, I don't think really works that well um, in a lot of implementations. It kind of looks a bit weird. Post-processing in general, I'm really happy to see that developers are starting to introduce toggles. It works in so Alien they're... Isolation, though. Oh, absolutely, mm. yeah. Because they, ca- they I mean, capture that feel. You know, any kind of post-process effects deployed skillfully is, you know, it's going to work. But I do like the fact that um, a lot of developers are introducing the fact that, you know, introducing toggles to turn them off. Um, on a on a sort of general level, um, I think there's kind of like a sort of homogen homogenization of rendering techniques, where you know stuff like ray tracing is kind of like being sort of frowned upon. Uh, when actual fact, it's doing stuff that is pretty revolutionary. 
but people seem to be so wedded to the kind of homogenization of specific effects. You know, for example, reflections. Um, nobody seems particularly bothered anymore that you can, you know, for example, in uh, uh, Black Ops or, or any particular game, I was thinking of um, uh, the uh, Black Ops Battle Royale. There's a lot of mirrors in that game when you're inside buildings, but nobody seems overly concerned that, you know, nothing is really reflected in them. And in actual fact, there was a Twitter account that cropped up saying, you know, uh, it was just literally, do, do mirrors work in this game? And it just kind of, the fact that nobody really notices anymore, I think it's because um, uh, rendering technology seems to move with a sort of singular purpose forward. People sort of swap their techniques and stuff. There used to be, mirrors used to be a lot more prevalent in games, and that's just due to the technology. Like, th you could do things very differently back then, but... Uh, like literally re-rendering the scene on the other side uh, as like, you know, and then putting a transparent thing between it. <laughs> to but the funny mirror two did that. Metro 2, the mirrors there were just like... Oh yeah, all, two, all, the, all the mirrors and the reflective deck on the tanker, it was literally just like mirroring the geometry below the surface and then using like a transparent texture with different layers to make it look like uh, it was actually like a reflective thing. Or like Duke Nukem 3D, where they like load in like an extra like duplicate of an area within a specific radius behind the mirrors, and some there's somebody that was actually playing around with that, where you can actually no clip through the mirror into the mirror zone, and you can start to wander through the level. But once you go outside of the radius of which the data is like actually like saved, I guess it gets weird. Uh, I don't know. Like it's, it's I love that stuff though, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, it's it's but it is kind of bizarre because you know Hitman two and three come along, and uh, they do actually do proper mirrors, and it's kind of like a revelation to people that you can actually see yourself. Hitman even did transparent reflections too, using like I think it was all planar, but uh, on their big like big panes of glass, it reflected the scenery, and you could see through it. Remember in the Hitman two like the opening mission, that beach house, you can see everything reflected in those uh, windows. Yeah, so that's my answer to that question. But uh, a final one here we should talk about. Okay, so Sweet Mini has this question. Aloha, DF, they say. Uh, good. Um, if you had a day in an imaginary arcade with every game that ever reached a location test available, all on free play from vintage pre-pinball machines to the very latest arcade games, which games would you spend most of your time on? If you don't have, a spe if you don't have specific names... Which corner or genre, I guess? Pinballs, prize crane machines, pachinko. I mean, well, let's just... It's a whole bunch Everything, of... Everything, basically. Yeah. Listed it. Everything, yeah. If you were given the option to green light a full-body re-release alongside consoles and PC port of one of them, which would it be? I would love to see Marble Madness 2, uh, for example. Marble Man? Okay. John? I, I would probably spend most of my time in the racing corner. Uh, I would probably start by hopping into the uh, the full scale uh, Miata that they played uh, Ridge Racer on. Right. You know, I I would have to give that a go uh, first, and then you know all the Sega arcade machines with the hydraulics in it, where you hop in and race the car, and the whole cabinet like moves around. I love that stuff. That's uh, racing games in the arcade with the wheels and the force feedback and the moving cabs, and that stuff is amazing. That feels great to play. Um, so, you know, of course, I'd, 
places like this exist, by the way. There are arcade, not with that many games, but there's plenty of these arcades where you pay like 10 bucks and then everything's on free play and there's like hundreds of machines in there. And I love yeah, going arcades. to those places. Yeah, um, big business. But and then uh, you have round one in like uh, Los Angeles and oh, yeah. uh, I forget where else in the US. Which Since, is Cincinnati has Arcade Legacy, which is like this gigantic yeah. warehouse size area with just like hundreds of machines. And it's I love it. Um, there's the pinball museum in frankfurt oh yeah that's there and there's an arcade here as well but but yes so racing games that's where i'd probably go and of them all i mean okay actually if there was one you'd want to see a full body re-release i would actually choose rave racer which i think we talked about recently as after namco like re-trademarked things but rave racer never got a proper home conversion you can kind of emulate it and it works okay but it's still a little bit fiddly via emulation uh, I would like to, to see that game just like out there proper for people to enjoy at home. For genre corners, I would go to the fighting games. I would just play fighting games all day, all night. Uh, he mentioned location tests, and one game I've been wanting to see uh, dropped for a while now is uh, there was a planned Ninja Gaiden 2 fighting game in the arcades, which uh, only exists in screenshots. I thought you were going to say Primal Rage 2. Uh, Primal Rage 2 has been done. I know, yeah, it's done. So, uh, but Ninja Gaiden 2, uh, never. And it looks pretty interesting. Uh, I don't know if it was especially good or anything. It was location tested in three locations, I think, and then disappeared. And, um, yeah. It was a Neo something... Geo game, wasn't it? Yeah. No, uh, it was a Neo Geo uh, Dang, it's game a... that was supposed that to happen. It sucks and... that never fa- got found. It looked like it had very good sprite art. Uh, Double Dragon came out on the Geo, and um, when I was uh, when I was working on a book project, you know, I went to Japan. I sourced out all these uh, retired pachinko machines and arcade machines and stuff to do archival, you know, pictures and stuff for it. And uh, I kept an eye out for anything like this, where it's like because I got some pretty good access, but. For the most part, it was just these huge pachinko graveyards, unfortunately. So, uh, and I would not be spending any time in the pachinko corner because uh, that's just death. It's not meant for normal human beings. <laughs> okay, um, this is a really interesting question. I'd really like to see the original um, Space War. You know, the one of the very, very first games, if oh, not wow. the first. I'd kind of like Man, to see that. You're so old. I'd like to see it and play it. Well, you know, this kind of predates, well, not quite. I would have been in very, very young at the time. I'd love to have seen that. Um, full, I kind of like the idea of a full body re-release. <laughs> what does that mean, full body? Um, I, I would like... you want, Rich. <laughs> um, I would like to see uh, Daytona 2, uh, which is an awesome game, which, again, it's an uh, example of uh, Sega just kind of Never really did anything with it. I, I suspect. Well, you can... there was they. They started work on yeah. it after Daytona USA for Xbox happened, 360, though. was it? Yeah, and it never went anywhere. I have Sadly. no idea why. It sucks because it's as much as I love Daytona One, Daytona One's great. Uh, two is just the better game. Ultimately, it's fantastic. It's the music so good. Is great. It's so refined. Yeah, yeah. It's... But that's it. That's that's basically my answer to that question. The, it is a question of such broad scope. 
that you could be debating it for decades, I think. Um, but um, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, so, look, that's the end of the show. We've covered everything we wanted to cover. And I just want to thank both of you for joining me on this one. It's been fun. Of course. Thanks. Um, okay. So, look, if you like the content, please do like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for instant notifications. Yes, instant. They are instant uh, notifications whenever we drop new content. Uh, the DF Supporter Program, we've already gone in depth about why that is awesome, but I do suggest you check it out. Patreon.com slash Digital Foundry. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of this one, if indeed you did, because I do appreciate it. it was a very long one. Uh, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. <laughs>